evening, everyone. Welcome to uh, this uh, number two uh, webinar of the Synod Watch series the Template is doing uh, to help raise awareness um, and understanding of the Synod process launched by Pope Francis. Um, this evening, we're going to be discussing uh, and hearing from leaders from religious orders about how those in religious communities can offer their insights into the synod process. Um, it's always struck me that whilst the synod is a new idea for many in, in the church, um, religious orders have been doing synodality uh, for uh, many years and therefore it seemed right that we hear from those experts and what wisdom that they can share uh, with us. Um, this evening is going to be split into two parts broadly. The first is going to be looking at how uh, religious orders can can offer um, their, can bring their experience of listening and collective discernment to the wider church. And then the second part, we're going to be looking at how um, those in religious orders are working with those on the margins and peripheries and how those voices can be brought into the synod process because that's a very important part of synodality that it's not just listening to those who are already going to church but those uh, voices on the margins so just quickly to introduce our panel we have uh, six um, religious order leaders with us this evening um, delighted to welcome sister jolanta kafka who is the president of the union of superiors general based in rome Father Nick Austin, who is Master of Campion Hall, um, the college or the hall run by the Society of Jesus in Oxford. Sister Gemma Simmons, who is well known to you as a Congregation for Jesus of Jesus' Sister, who as Director of the Religious Life Institute at the Margaret Beaufort Institute of Theology in Cambridge. We also uh, have Sister Jane Bertelson, leader of the Franciscan Missionaries of the Divine Motherhood and an expert in safeguarding, Sister Linda Dearlove from Institute of Our Lady of Mercy, who also works at the Women at the Well initiative, and Father Lawrence Freeman, well known, I think, to many tablet readers uh, as a columnist and writer at the tablet and the director of the World Community for Christian Meditation. So thank you all for being part of this discussion. Um, I would like to start with my first question, uh, and that is to Sister Jolanta, Yolanta, um, and ask her what, what religious sisters are doing in terms of the synod process. How are they um, contributing to it? And what do you think religious sisters in particular can offer the church um, in this synod process, where, of course, the question of the role of women has become such an important topic? Sister Yolanta. Mm. Uh, thank you very much. Good evening to everybody. And and you have to excuse my English. I am not English, but I will try to, to express myself as much as I can. So um, in July last year, uh, the Secretariat of the Synod has organized a short seminar in which some religious traditions were called to share their tradition, their practice of synodality all over the centuries in certain congregations. And this seminar showed to us how much the charism and the practices we have lived in the religious congregation can contribute to the process of the synod in the, in the church. And in fact, this was the first call we have received from the secretariat to deepen the practices and the concrete ways in which till now we can uh, say that we have practiced uh, discernment, walking together, taking decision, listening to the God words and sharing it with others. And in this session, one of the um, questions that raised was how beautiful would be if in the local churches, the charism which are present in the local churches can sit together and share how with the charism, with the spirituality, which is united with the charism, 
we can contribute in the synagogue path in the church. So uh, with this example, I want to say that the first way of participating in the synodal process is to really put in common and exchange in this communal dimension of the synodal journey, the charism present as we have read in the CTI instruction that the, uh, that the hierarchical and the charismatical dimension of the church are co-essential. So this is the first aspect. And the second aspect is uh, a part of the listening stage where every religious is supposed to join the process of the dioceses of the local church. The participation of the religious, which we are fostering a lot, is to offer to the local churches the tools, instruments for the discernment on the level of formation of the animators of the group, of the methodology, of the proximity of the church towards the people. And the third aspect, uh, briefly saying, is how religious, especially sisters, present in the peripheries of the church, in the liminal uh, boundaries of the church, can watch, can, can take care, so that all voices are heard especially in this stage of listening in the first phase of the synod. So I think if we are there in the grassroots of the, of the, of the life of the church, uh, our task also very sensible, maybe very invisible often, is to, to try to, to, to provide that really the call of Pope Francis to, to make the environment of the church open to all voices will be really fulfilled. So this is just the, the first aspect. Thank you. Thank, thank, thank you. Um, now, I I'm, would like to follow up the question. Before I do that, I, I forgot to mention in my introduction that this evening's webinar has been sponsored by the Jesuits in Britain and the Conference of Religious for England and Wales. I want to thank them very much for their sponsorship and their support. Um, Sister Jans, I just wanted to follow up. Um, the religious sisters are going to be involved in the process at the grassroots level. One of the religious sisters um, playing a big role in this process is Sister Natalie Beckart. Um, do you expect religious sisters to be involved in the big meeting of bishops in 2023? And what about the possibility of, of women voting in the synod meeting in 2023 because there's some there's been some sort of debate over whether sister natalie beckup will actually get to vote actually we have been assisting we have been witnessing the gradual process of involvement of the not only of the participation in the phase of preparation or first steps of the synod, but also in the synods. And last synod of Amazonia, uh, religious female life counted on 20 sisters participating in the, in the process of synod. It was, you know, uh, a moment of, of joy and taking part actively. So uh, we are respecting also, you know, the dynamic of the, of the church that certain processes, we cannot uh, make them faster as we cannot pull the plants to grow faster. Uh, yes, Natalie will vote. And in the many dioceses, as we have heard her saying, in many dioceses, the sisters are at the commissions, often leading the commissions of the dioceses in the process of the synod what will happen in the celebration of the Synod in 2023, we don't know yet. But we, we hope and we, 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 we take for granted that if the Synod has to be expression of the people of God participating in the discernment, 
that not only sisters will be there, but many other members of the people of Gap. Okay. And do you also hope that this synod process will open a new path for women's leadership in the church? It will continue because we see that how gradually it is happening. It will continue because the, the process of the, of the discernment, uh, I think, will, will be involving all the members of the church. So not only in the discernment, but also in the fruit of the discernment. So we hope really that the, we will be open enough to the to this graces of the Holy Spirit that is at the center of this process of the sin. Yeah, thank you. I'd like to bring in uh, Father Nick Austin at this point. You're a Jesuit and you are obviously skilled in Ignatian discernment. Uh, in the same uh, order as Pope Francis, who has uh, launched this this process, how do you see it's? Uh, how do you think things have gone so far? And do you think the church at the the grassroots level is really understanding what collective discernment actually looks like, and how can how can people such as yourself um, deepen that and, and encourage that? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, in terms of what the Jesuits uh, contribute, along with other Ignatian religious congregations and Ignatian people, is this practice of discernment. But I should issue a few caveats to begin with. One is that before we contribute anything to this process, we have to acknowledge that we're in the process ourselves. And we too are learning how to become the synodal church. And I think that that's been a process which has been um, very fruitful for us, but we're still uh, still in it. So I think we're, we've been aware during the pontificate of Francis of this movement to a more discerning church, a church that's genuinely open to where the spirit is, is leading. Uh, but we're, you know, we recognise that we we're part of that. We we ourselves are in that process of becoming a more discerning body. Um, I think uh, we've been delving more into our tradition of discernment, especially in this idea of discernment in common. And when the Jesuits met for their general congregation recently. They remembered especially a moment in Venice when St. Ignatius and the early companions uh, had thought they were going to Jerusalem and discovered they couldn't go. And they were left in Venice sort of really not knowing where to go next. And they had to therefore discern together what the next step was. And they decided to stay together as friends in the Lord and, uh, and effectively to become uh, a religious uh, order. But I think that's very important for us at the moment. We have to begin this process in the process of not knowing where the Spirit is going to lead us. Because if we think we already know the answer, if we just go into this with our own agenda, then we're not really handing the agenda over to God and to the Holy Spirit. And that would be a travesty of what the synodal process is ultimately about its core so yes i think we we do want to share more the the practice of discernment um but i i there's a, a final caveat which i think is also critically important which is that the jesuit congregations don't have a monopoly on discernment one of my favorite quotations about discernment is actually from john paul ii it may surprise you a little bit but in Familiaris Consortio, he talks about discernment as a gift of all the baptized and as a work of the whole church. Um, and we have to recognize that this is a gift that every Christian is given potentially to develop. And although the Ignatian tradition accents discernment, uh, especially, it's really the common patrimony of the church and of many different. Uh, religious traditions, the monastic traditions, and, and so on. So, uh, yeah, so we do hope to share this wisdom of discernment in common more 
but we're, we're also learning how to put that into practice more frequently in our own ways of proceeding. Uh, can you uh, help uh, us un unpack uh, a tension that perhaps exists within discernment in how Pope Francis sees it? Because on the one hand, we've got this extraordinary um, consultation and listening process going on. Everyone's been asked to give their view. But there is a question that some people have is, well, who's going to make the final decisions? How does that work? How does that tension between discernment and decision-taking happen in practice and in, in, in your experience? It's a good question. I think it is a tension, but it certainly isn't a contradiction. And, uh, you know, Ignatius himself uh, places great emphasis on individual discernment, on discernment in common, but he also remained within the church, unlike some others in, in his period, the reformers, and emphasized the importance of sensing with the church, of feeling with the church. Uh, so he recognized that it's the same spirit that, that works through the scriptures of the church as work through individual experience. So that's the sort of general principle that the two are not in contradiction. But we, as you point out, you know, in practice, it can be an incredible tension. I think the, the solution is precisely a process in which those in authority um, sort of step outside of their position of decision making for a moment and really attend to what is the experience of the members of the church. Because if we don't attend to uh, everybody's experience, then we potentially miss one of the ways the Holy Spirit is speaking to the church today. Because, you know, whose tongue is the Holy Spirit going to use to speak to the church? And I think it's Pope Francis's conviction that every Christian has that potential to be an instrument of the Spirit. And he's also emphasizing uh, rightly, I think that it's especially those on the peripheries who have something uh, particular uh, to be carriers, as it were, of the Spirit's message to the church. And how would you respond to those who say, well, this sort of process is unleashing all sorts of disagreements and, and, and battles and all sorts of uh, conflicts, potentially. Um, isn't that something the church wants to avoid? Shouldn't we, shouldn't we try and just sort of keep things in a nice harmony you know isn't this synodal discernment doesn't that just cause more problems than it's worth how do you respond to the to, to that concern that i think some people quite high up in the church might have yeah and i think that's a brilliant question i think there is significant anxiety aren't we just unleashing this sort of chaos and you know a lot of anger and a lot of polarization i think what i'd say is that we already experience voices in the church sometimes seemingly diametrically opposed so we can't but discern there are different voices that's a fact and there are some whose voices haven't been heard yet and so we have to listen we have to discern there isn't really an option the only question is how we do that if we try and just keep the lid on all the time then these polarizations these contradictions these uh, conflicts will turn increasingly sour i think so you know there is a sort of false peace we think we can achieve if we batten down the hatches and, and prevent people from speaking it is a bit of a risk you know we it'll probably be a bit of a messy process we don't know what the result is going to be uh, but if we believe that the church ultimately is the church of the holy spirit then i think we have to take that risk okay um Sister Gemma, there'll be people on this call who may have already taken part in some meetings on the Synod process in their parishes and elsewhere. And one of the things that I'm hearing is that, is that the Synod is being presented to them as sort of answering a survey, answering a few questions, and then it's all over. Is that synodality? No, not remotely. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> not in the least bit. And, and I keep telling people, um, you know, I keep being asked by groups who are, are working with me, you know, 
have we got permission? Can we speak? Can we share our experience? And I keep saying very firmly, whose permission do you need? The Pope has invited you. And, you know, if people, I mean, sometimes people are coming back and saying, well, you know, our parish priest won't let us. Well, go beyond the parish priest then. You know, the, the Pope has made it very, very clear, and the people who are organizing the Synod, that they want a diversity of voices to be heard. And therefore, I think this is the moment where we, we summon up the courage, you know. Um, we, we don't have to ask anyone else's permission. The permission has already been given. Um, and I, I can see, I mean, I've experienced it myself in um, a variety of dioceses where I've worked, that there's been a certain level of anxiety, as you say, that they don't want this to end up being a, a gathering of um, protest groups or a gathering of a kind of influencers who are vying for, for power. But there is a very authentic movement of people simply wanting to share their experience. I had the most amazing, amazing evening uh, a week or so ago with the um, LGBTQ uh, group Quest. And um, it was just so moving. I felt really humbled, really humbled as a theologian, as a sister, as a woman in the church to hear the extraordinarily honest and sometimes very painful expressions of these people who are people of great faith, wanting to participate, wanting to serve within the church and feeling so rejected and so marginalized. And then there would be others who would say, well, actually that's not been my experience. I feel as a gay man, as a gay woman, I have been accepted and it's mostly been the religious who offered me that space. <laughs> and uh, you know, that made me feel, a whole, I went home feeling a whole load better. Um, but uh, you know, we don't need to sit around waiting for someone's permission here. Yes. Do you think it's already when it comes to the similar process was already when it comes to say LGBTQ groups who felt marginalized in the past. Do you think the Synod is already in a sense including them in a way that that, that, that hasn't happened before? Yes, I absolutely do. And you know, looking at just some of the faces in the little squares here, um, I'm aware of a number of people with whom I have worked in the spirituality field, um, either as a a retreat director or bringing weeks of guided prayer to parishes or what have you. And I'm aware that many of us who work in that field are um, walking alongside people whose deep, deep thirst for God and whose deep spiritual hunger is simply not being fed by the frankly God-awful liturgies that they're being subjected to week after week in parishes. And many of these people no longer go to church or no longer go to the Catholic church simply because there, there is a, such a huge disconnect between their spiritual hunger and, and what they're being fed. So I think in many ways, the voice of the religious in the synod, uh, those who are working, let's say in the spirituality field or in other fields, other pastoral fields is hopefully a voice of encouragement to such people to to be honest about how they have experienced church as community or as non-community of inclusion and um, and encourage them to to let their voices be heard we've had this initial consultation that's gone on this initial synodal process but it does feel very short and, and that it's going to be finishing quite soon in, in, for some uh, parishes. How can the similar process go beyond just the last few months? I mean, surely this can't just be the end of it. No, this has got to be the beginning. And I mean, certainly in the work that I've been doing in diocese, when, when, um, when I've found a diocese courageous enough to ask me, um, you know, I've gone in and tried to encourage the clergy to see this as good news, that this is about, you know, I, I think we have to balance not offering people false hope, 
that suddenly all the church's problems are going to be solved, you know, because that that would just lead to a sort of massive come down, rather like the one that a number of people experienced after the Liverpool Pastoral Congress. And, and that will make things kind of even worse. But if you know, we can learn priests and people together that actually by coming together, we can generate creative energy, positive energy. Um, just, you know, the, the, the process is the product. Yes, yes. That's the important thing for this synod. The process itself is the product, you know. Oh, and when you look at how it's been played out in dioceses who, you, who you've worked with, it does seem to me, I don't know if, if you share this, that, that ordinary Catholics, the laity, are very enthusiastic about this, but the opposition or the, uh, the lack of sort of wanting to go with this process is coming from clergy. Well, is that know, fair? No, I don't think it is, actually, Christopher. Um, I mean, I think it's, it, I want to say, as I usually do, on the one hand, on the other hand, I mean, I've been quite surprised, actually, at the responses um, when we as religious have got together, when the conference of religious has got us together to talk, how many of the religious that I've been in groups with seem to be concentrating on, you know, what's happening with the parish priest. Um, well, of course the parish priest is an important figure um, in a community of faith, but he's not the community. And, and, you know, he's not the Lord of the community. And actually, I, I think there's a, a certain amount of projection goes on there. Let's shove it all onto daddy. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm sitting there on the sidelines wanting to say, well, what about us, you know, taking hold of our responsibility? And I can see that I think there are some clergy who do feel very nervous because, they know the spotlight's on them and it's to a certain extent it's looking at their performance as the community leader but you know we know that a faith community doesn't begin and end with the man in the dog collar and and we have to take responsibility for ourselves in that respect and find ways try um you know, find ways. Many of us do this kind of negotiating in our professional lives all the time, or in our family lives. Well, you know, let's let's learn to do it in our in our faith lives, in our community lives as well. I'd like to ask um, you three, who I've just just been we've just been talking about um, the role of of laity uh, emerging from the synod process. Pope Francis at the weekend instituted. Um, lay men and women for the first time into the ministry of lector, acolyte and catechist. Do you see the Synod as opening the path for laity to be leading parishes perhaps in the future when there, are, when there aren't priests? How do you see those lay ministries uh, working? And, are, and is, that, is it in, as important as, as some people have said? And maybe we we'll go with uh, Yolanta? Mm, yeah, mm, I, I think there is a lot of practices already in the church that just have to be acknowledged and really uh, uh, considered as possible, not only as an extraordinary event, no. And uh, really, uh, I think uh, this is the hope that, that I personally feel, and I, in the name of the, also the religious, no, that really the church as a people of God may walk together. So every vocation in this membership as a, as a baptized, no, Father, Father Osina said, just in, in the name of our basic vocation of discipleship and following uh, Jesus, no, uh, really I, I consider it. And then uh, we uh, can build the church uh, in in the sense of communion where everybody feels part of, no? and in this discernment and also in the decision-taking. Okay. Nick? Yes, I, I uh, agree with what Sister Yolanda said. I think, yes, uh, we can expect a greater participation of, of the laity in all aspects of the church's life, but I don't think it would be restricted to things like being, you know, lector, acolyte, catechist, the liturgical aspect. 
you know, the, it's to do with the church's mission and the, the laity further the church's mission in a thousand different ways, some of which are not at all churchy. You know, if they're, they're a teacher in a school teaching mathematics, maybe they're furthering the church's mission uh, by the way they relate to their students. For example, just one example. So the church has a great mission in the world, and it, it's not just about what happens within the four walls of a church, but it's, it's how that mission can be discerned and understood by the church as a whole, how it can be inspired by people's uh, faith. And hopefully, you know, it's, it's what is the church called to in the world today? And that, that's what the Synod's going to be asking. It's not primarily focused, I don't think, or we shouldn't assume at the beginning that the primary focus is how can we solve all of the problems with the church's structures? How can we solve all the problems with the hierarchy or something like that? It's a much deeper question than that. What is the church asking of all Christians, of the whole church today? And yes, that can be a very liberating, uh, a liberating thing. But it's it's not just about the churchy church, if you know what I mean. <laughs> sure. And and Gemma, I would very much want to follow up on what Nick has just said. Um, in uh, paragraph two seven three of um, Evangelii Gaudium, it's one of my total favourite paragraphs in that whole wonderful, wonderful exhortation. Pope Francis writes. Um, my mission of being in the heart of the people isn't just a part of my life or a badge I can take off. It's not an extra or just another moment in life. Instead, it's something I cannot uproot from my being without destroying my very self. I am a mission on this earth. That's the reason why I'm here in this world. And I love that. I am a mission. He doesn't say I have a mission as if we could kind of decide not to have it or leave it in the cupboard for the day you know he's therefore saying who i am and how i am who i am is the mission and and i would love to see in our churches i would love to see a a, a spirituality and a theology of mission rooted in that understanding being given to people you know every day that they come into the church and in every catholic school that people take on board in our prisons. You know, I was a, a, a volunteer prison chaplain for 25 years, and I kept saying this to the women there, you know, you are a mission. Who you are and how you are who you are, that is the mission. Um, so it matters how you are who you are. And, and you, you see people, once they take that kind of an idea on board, develop a certain confidence in themselves, a, a, a comfortableness in you know, a sense of affirmation of who they are. And uh, I, I think it would be brilliant if we had that kind of a, a mission endeavor without worrying about, you know, which jobs we're going to hand out to who. Okay. Well, um, I'd like to move to the second part of, of the discussion. Now, I'm sure we can um, touch back on all the, the themes that have been raised so far, but go and look now at how the synod process can bring in a diversity of, of voices. And I'd like to ask Sister Jane Bertelson, who has worked um, a lot with abuse survivors and in safeguarding, if you think the synod can somehow uh, hear from abuse survivors in this, this process and how, how important you think that would be? Um, thanks, Christopher. Terrible question. I was sorry when you saw you gave me that title. <laughs> I'm um, sorry. <laughs> well, pl please, um, you know. No, it's okay. I've thought a lot about okay. it. And I found myself coming at it saying, I think we're asking the wrong question. And as religious in the church, and it's not a question of better or worse or, you know, right or wrong, I think our, our founders and our charisms often call us to turn the church upside down. That's what our founders have done in the past and we do probably not very well today. So I found myself thinking in relation to those on the margins, abused in particular, who yes, I have journeyed with for many years, is that 
we're presuming we're at the heart and they're on the edge. And that's not how it is. It's not how Jesus saw it. It's not how last Sunday's gospel saw it. It's not how last Sunday's second reading saw it. Every part of the body is equal and important. So I almost wonder if this whole process of synodality, as you were saying earlier, you know, surely it's not gonna finish in a couple of months. I feel we're stepping out, we've stepped one step out of Egypt and we've got the whole desert to go before we get to the promised land. And to see the world differently and start not saying something's at the heart and something's on the edge. Because for many people who've suffered abuse in the church, they want to do what Pope Francis is asking us to do, which is journey together, encounter, be listened to, have a sense of their mission. And I, I quite passionately believe that the spirit, the spirit's in charge of this synod and is bigger and better and stronger than all of us times eternity that if we can really as religious women and men keep asking the question about who's on the edge and who's at the heart um we might make some progress and i think accompaniment and engagement with You've asked me particularly about those who suffered abuse, but it's many, many, many others too, is that there's a huge fear that blocks the church, whoever the church is, from sitting at the table with them. And I've worked alongside some amazing church people who are professional church people, if you like, priests, bishops, who found it a privilege to sit at the table of the abused and listen and to learn and have their hearts changed, to allow themselves to be accompanied by the abused who have already been crucified and risen, but they're few. So I think one of the roles of religious in this whole bringing people who are perhaps on the edge, we define as on the edge, into the heart, is accompanying those who, who are in fear, who, who do feel fearful. And um, maybe then collectively, we can grow into a synodal church. Because at the heart of what Pope Francis has said is that Nobody's on the edge. So I, I think we I feel I need a change of mindset. I read I need to rediscover my own founder's heart, Francis's heart, who who saw the lepers were at the heart. <laughs> so I, I think, and I say, I felt if we just re lived last Sunday's readings, we wouldn't have a problem. <laughs> yes, and given your work in safeguarding and walking with the, the abused, what do you say to um, the fact that the synod process has come out of the abuse crisis? How important are the reforms that are being addressed by the synod in a sense of a, a, a response and coming out of the abuse, the, 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 the abuse scandals? I wonder if the abuse scandals have just taken down some defences and opened doors and the spirit has broken through and the call to be church differently has generated an energy and released the spirit. 
I, I find it difficult to say because that happened, this is happening. I think it's part of that um, chaos and crisis, and I love chaos. I'm more than happy, the more chaos, the better. Um, because we know in our heart of hearts, out of chaos comes beauty, comes newness, comes creative things. So if, if that crucifixion is going to create a better, uh, a, a more life-giving community of the faithful and community of the world, fantastic. But I'm not, I struggle to see, the spirit might have used that crisis, but I'm not sure the link, I, I struggle to see the sure. direction. I would like to say to everyone on the, the call, if they would like to ask questions, please do uh, write them in the, the chat box and we will try to to come to them. I know we've got a lot of um, panelists to, to talk to, but, but please do um, put your questions through. Um, Sister Jane, just, just one other um, question. Um, often when the abuse crisis is being addressed by the church as an institution, it's often about the protocols, the the rules, etc. As and as important as they are, surely a synodal church is actually saying we've got to go deeper. It's got to be something a lot more fundamental um, when it comes to how the church uh, walks with the, the survivors and, and and those who've been abused. You're absolutely right, Christopher. And I found myself saying that to someone today. Um, it's about relationships. It's about a change of heart. It's about seeing my sister and brother in need. It's about living the gospel. And no amount of protocols, rules, commissions, that's not going to change anything. It might, it might um, help. But it's not going to change. It's not going to change. I, I really believe that. And I've worked in safeguarding for over 20 years. And I've been part of creating the protocols and everything else. But I'm now I'm absolutely convinced it's about relationships. It about, it's about us being liberated. It's about us receiving the new sight those of us who are trying to make these protocols, and it's about relationship. I'd like to um, now bring in Sister Linda, dear love. Um, and Sister Linda is involved in, a, in an incredible um, work with the Women at the Well initiative, which is dedicated to serving women involved in, in, in street-based prostitution, victims of trafficking. Um, Sister Linda, how does the Synod process apply to, to your work? Um, and how can the people that you're, you're working with, how can they um, uh, bring their voice to the Synod process? I think there are two factors that are really important. And first of all, I think I'd like to take us to the story of the woman at the well. Because if we look at what happened there, she is a woman who was multiply excluded by society. You know, we hear Jesus say five times married and with somebody else now. So we know that there is a stigma attached in those labels in whatever way. I should say before I go any further about the synodal process, one of the questions would be, how is what he said going to be filtered? The power of whatever happened to the woman at the well is yes we have no name for her but it was filtered through the men who saw it because at that stage the the decide the apostles weren't apostles they were disciples they were following they had brought nobody to jesus jesus had an encounter with a woman that was so deep and moved beyond the ostracization she experienced that she was so changed that the people who ostracized her noticed that change. And in the doing of that, whatever had empowered her through that, she was able to say, come and see the man 
who told me all I ever did, could this be the Christ? So something happened to her. This synodal journey is about how we encounter and enable each other to be heard and to feel listened to, but also to hear ourselves. And that's a big part of what we do here with the women. And one of the women said, I guess I get people to see that we are not weak. We're not like down and out. We can have a lot of strength. And, you can, and if you give us a bit of a chance to have a voice and a bit more choice, we can be there. And that we're not out of society, that we're part of society and we are right next to you. The challenge in that is, how do we view those women? I'm talking about a particular group of peripheral women, women who are involved in prostitution, mostly through no choice of their own. They're choosing to survive. That's the only thing they can do. But then they are viewed through that label. In addition to that, many of them are street homeless and would be seen on street corners. How do we view them? But if you look at that, these women that we work with here have learned to have some voice because it's a big part of what we do. But if we look at our parishes, who are the voiceless people there? Who and how do we create the safe space that actually includes them? Because it's not about engaging them in a consultation process. It's about a change in heart and mind that actually would give them a real voice and would enable them to feel included. And, and how would you advise a, a parish, say, involved in this synod process? They've started the initial consultations. Some people have turned up for them, but it's the people who are normally involved in these kind of church um, activities. What would you say to a parish who would, wants to really hear from um, those so-called on the margins? I think it's about beginning the conversations. It's not about having meetings. It's about creating spaces, whether it is that at the back of your church, not in a church hall, you start having a cup of tea and you start beginning to engage, to encounter each other in ways that are real. Because the reality is, you know, it's not whether or not somebody smiles and nods nicely as they go out of the door to avoid talking to you. It's how you get to the stage where looking into their eyes, they actually see that you care. Many years ago, my niece was in her forties now and nursing, she came as a volunteer and she was working, hunting out, you know, food and drinking, the drop-in service for homeless people. And I took her out on the streets at night and tried to encourage her to one of the really hard to reach long-term homeless men. And I shouted him over and I said, John, come over here and meet my niece. And he looked at me and said, but we've already met. She gave me a cup of tea today and the most beautiful smile. It's those, it's about real encounter, not asking a question, but being alongside, Jane talked about accompaniment earlier. It's about how we engage with each other in meaningful ways that people understand that actually we really do care, that their lives matter. That's what happened to the woman at the well of no name, but whose story still touches all of us. Well, thank you. Um, and that's a beautiful uh, image there and lots to lots to think about and um, I'd like to uh, bring in Father Lawrence Freeman who's been waiting patiently thank you for uh, uh, for doing that and uh, uh, last but certainly not least um, I'd like to ask you um, Lawrence about the similar process and the the spiritual hunger that exists in in secular societies of course you involved with Christian meditation giving retreats can the synod process uh, encourage the church to, to respond to that need, that hunger that there is in, in secular society for, 
for for a deeper spirituality or is it too much of a sort of internal church discussion at the moment well first of all thank you uh, i first of all I want to thank everybody for for speaking so inspiringly i've learned a great deal uh, by listening and feel very inspired i think in answer to your question i i think the deeper spirituality and the synodal process go together you know a few years ago uh i don't know there's a lot of conversation about what was it time to have a third uh vatican council ecumenical council and i think this is it i think potentially this is the 21st century kind of council um it's not going to be done in the hierarchical theatrical way that it was done you know in the 60s 50s 60s but uh, I think it's beginning and I would say it's a characteristic of Pope Francis's revolutionary style uh, which is to call to a new ecclesial mentality He's avoided making many actual changes, and many people have been frustrated by that. But uh, I think this new metanoia that's beginning and that he has embodied really um, is taking you know a new a new phase now. And it's interesting he's not calling for an action plan, and this comes out of many of the things that my fellow panelists were saying. It's not about coming up with a new vision even, but it's about, uh, as he would say, I think he's asking people to listen to an experience of communion. And it reminds me of something of the rule of St. Benedict, my, my Benedictine, and the rule of St. Benedict has a chapter where the abbot is expected to call all the community to counsel on any important matters, including the young, because God often reveals to the young what it, what is most what is true. So listen to the young, he says, and then he have you have smaller councils, smaller groups uh, to deal with less important matters. So I think this is this is what uh, Francis is doing, and how we respond, how do we respond? How is the church responding? Everybody's called. Well, that reminds me of the parable of the wedding feast, doesn't it? Where um, the king asks everybody to the banquet. And there are three kinds of invitation that goes out. There's uh, to friends and the people he expects, but they tend not to come. They don't want the invitation. They make excuses. Then he gets a bit impatient and he sends out to the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. But even then, all the places aren't taken. And so he sends people out to the streets to fill up every available space. So I think my sense in answer to your question is what is the role of religious in this? Well, the religious are on the margins of the hierarchical church. They are exempt from bishops up to a point. So they are central to the church, but they're also marginal. They have a different experience of hierarchy and a different experience of community. And I think they have an opportunity to invite the people, the third, the second of the third level of people to this feast. And it could be a feast. It may not be, but it could be a feast or the beginning of a good meal. And I think that the religious who themselves need a great deal of renewal and a radical and revolutionary renewal. I mean, I, I, I live in a community now where we have a, the core community is, is a Benedictine oblates. And I can see that, that initial vision of Benedict, you know, before he, he wasn't intending to start a religious order back in the sixth century. I, I can see, I've, I've learned a lot about 
what the rule of St. Benedict and religious life means by living in this way. So we need to go back to our roots and maybe our contribution is going to be to reach out to the young people especially with a very clear understanding that, that comes when you meet with young people that what they are looking for, the spiritual hunger you were talking about, is very powerful and the church is not connected to it because it is just too unattractive or just irrelevant. But that energy of their hunger has a tremendous revolutionary potential for society. And it's our responsibility to do the best we can to, to bring it into the, into the feast. So um, they're looking for a community, yes, for connection, for friendship in a lonely world. But they're also looking for spiritual depth, for interiority. And when we teach meditation from the, the desert tradition, the mothers and fathers of the desert, uh, they click into that immediately because, uh, because they know that it's transformative. And if we want to transform an institution, then we're wasting our time unless we focus upon personal transformation. And this applies for the church, it applies for, we, we, you know, I go into, I meet with business leaders sometimes and teach them, uh, introduce them to meditation. And this point about personal transformation leading to social institutional transformation makes, makes sense. I think we all know that it makes sense. So, so I think we have a great, a great opportunity provided we bring in people who are not, not wearing the wedding garment even, but who, who will be, who will be, um, who will be disruptive. And I, I like to Jane's, I mean, we don't want to live in chaos, but chaos does bring, does bring uh, transformation. And um, the best way to do it is to bring in outsiders who can teach us, and they're often going to be the youngest ones. Can I um, ask you your your top tips for how to listen? Because the synod process is all about listening, and that's obviously the heart of Benedictine spirituality. But it strikes me in, in our you know in our culture, listening is very uh, much a difficult thing to do. It seems. So what are you? What are your tips for listening? Uh, be silent. Uh, it's the best way to listen. But uh, I think one has to, first of all, one has to listen to one's own depth, to the, to the heart, to the, to the silence within us, uh, the kingdom within us. And that is about training our attention. And we live in an age of hyper-distraction which disrupts all normal forms of relationship and communication. So anything that trains our attention, Simone Weil said that, that, that prayer is the highest form of attention. So at the heart of all of this, I think, is how do we see prayer? What is prayer? And are we, are we prepared to, to go to the, to the, the earliest definition of prayer, well, one of the earliest of, uh, of that um, prayer is good in itself. It calms the mind, reduces sin, and produces good works. It's from the third century. So to listen, I think we have to be able to be silent in ourselves, but also what a wonderful what a wonderful tip it would be to pass on, as you say, to begin any of these synodal meetings with a time of silence and to end with a time of silence. It changes the way we 
listen to each other and it changes the way we speak. Yeah, well, thank you. Um, we're coming to the end of the hour. In fact, we are at the end of the hour. We have got a question, which I think is, is very pertinent as uh, we conclude. And it's from uh, Jane, who says that some people won't engage with the synod process for all sorts of reasons. It's going to take time for the angry, hurt and fed up to be ready for encounter during this process. How can we keep the synodal encounter going in our communities after the diocesan phase ends? I think that's a crucial question. So as we talked about earlier, there's a danger that, that some can see this as a process that ends in, in a few weeks time or a month or so's time. So I want to throw that question open to the panel and whoever wants to come forward um, it's an open mic, as it were. Um, and the question is, how can uh, we keep this synodal encounter going in communities after this diocesan phase ends? Can I just say very briefly that if I'm not changed by the process, then nothing's going to happen. So I think if I allow myself to be changed and embrace synodality, I will go on having conversations with other people. And it might be a question of grains of yeast and mustard seeds. But my heart has to be changed first. That's my contribution. Okay. Okay. Thank you. I'd also say, uh, Chris, that um, to keep it going probably would call for a multiplicity of small discussion groups, groups of four people. I was talking to someone recently who said four is the, the number they come up with with all their research to be the ideal number because the extroverts and the introverts balance out. It's, it's too small for an extrovert and, and it's okay for an introvert. So. I think focusing on very small groups might, might be that way of getting what Jane was saying to, to keep this catalyst going. Does anyone else want to come in? I just I, gonna, sorry, go on, Gemma. No, sorry. I was going to say, we, we, I think we go on inviting and allowing ourselves to be invited. Um, uh, you know, Linda had, uh, talked about you know, the simplicity of encounters over a cup of tea. Um, now, I know that, that in these COVID times, some of those interactions are quite difficult, but, um, you know, if we can value the time that's taken over having very simple encounters, maybe with people we don't see very often or we don't know very often, and where we as the religious don't come in as the leaders, but simply come in as participators, uh, in, in simple encounters over a cup of tea or a bun or whatever it may be, um, and, you know, see what, what conversations arise, initiate conversations if that's what's needed. Um, but just, you know, ask people how they are. I mean, uh, you know, I find that just doing that with the, with the bus driver very often elicits all sorts of, uh, you know, uh, disclosures that I haven't remotely expected. I mean, you know, I've got one bus driver, I, I know all about her love life and about her parrot, um, because I once asked her how she was, and she told me. <laughs> I think we've just got to be ready to, to, to hear people and to, um, to be present to people and to, to take seriously how, you know, being present to other people can be a catalyst for them to, to give further uh, of their experience. I think going back to something Gemma said earlier when she was quoting Pope Francis, I am mission. I think there is something about moving beyond us being a voice for the voiceless. The, the issue is about enabling people to truly have a voice. And to do that, they have to believe that they have a right to have that voice. Many people have been silenced by stigma by society, by what they've encountered, by what they've heard, by how they believe they are viewed. And we have to find a way within ourselves to truly believe that, 
because in doing that, the other will experience that. But until we can find the humility in ourselves to move in that way and to be in that way, it, it will still be a mechanical, if this synod remains just a mechanical exercise, you know, the hope that I believe Francis has for us as the people of God won't be released. It won't become the equivalent of a third Vatican Council that actually is a council of the whole world. It will just be another paper exercise and that will be such a travesty. I think I'd, I'd probably um, say that probably the, the one of the main fruits often of, a, of an experience of discernment or genuine synodality is not so much the actions or decisions that are, are taken, but the experience of communion and communion with each other, communion with the spirit. And once people have tasted that, they won't want to go back to the old way of doing things. <laughs> so I don't think we need to be too worried about how do we continue this afterwards. If it really is an authentic process of synodality, people won't, won't you know, they won't be able to get enough of it after that. Well, thank you. And on that note, I'd like to to draw things to a conclusion and thank all the panelists for sharing their insights uh, and their reflections. I think we've had a, a masterclass in what synodality means at a personal level, but also at the communal one. So thank you very much, all of you. And there's so much to uh, think about and to reflect upon as this synodal journey continues. I'd like to thank um, the sponsors for this evening's webinar, Jesuits in Britain, and the Conference of Religious for England and Wales. Thank